Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Worship team, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you need a Bible, you can grab a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1165 in the pew Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This morning we are pushing our way through our series, The Upside Down Kingdom. We've been talking about this for the last number of weeks, that as Jesus came to earth, he said the kingdom of heaven is also coming to earth, as I punched Chris Lawson in the face. Uh, as we are continuing through, we're trying to dig into what Jesus was getting at, that heaven is not just something we will get to one day. The kingdom of heaven is not uh, just far off, although we will engage the fullness of it at a later time. But Jesus said the kingdom of heaven has started now, that we who are followers of Jesus are living in the kingdom of heaven now. He's building his kingdom on earth now. And as he does that, we are to understand, well, what's this kingdom all about? If we are a follower of Jesus, we are a citizen of that heavenly kingdom. And like any other kingdom, the kingdom of heaven has laws and commandments, has boundaries, has values, has a culture. And so we're wanting to understand what what is the culture of this kingdom that we are called to live in? And one of the things that this series is emphasizing is that a lot of times the culture of the kingdom, the laws of the kingdom, the commandments of the kingdom are very different from the way we might naturally, instinctually want to live. It's very different from how the enemy would want us to live. It's very different from what the world is telling us in the way that we should live. It's upside down. It is often backwards. The ways of the kingdom of heaven are often upside down to these other ways. And so our tagline for the series has been to learn the ways of the kingdom is to find the will of the king. If we want to live a life that is pleasing to God, if we want to live a life that is uh, lived in such a way that when we stand before him, he says, well done, good and faithful servant, then we need to understand how are we then supposed to be living? What does that look like to live out the ways of this kingdom? So history lesson. Who can tell me the name of this Canadian war hero? Grant is American. Nice try. Brock. Did I hear Brock? Did someone say it? Yeah, that was General Brock. And so we don't have a ton of Canadian heroes in the same way. But when I was growing up in school, we learned about General Brock, who was British, but we were British when he was here. And so in the War of 1812, America declares war on Britain. And because Britain's across the ocean and they don't have boats to get there, they really declare war on Canada. And their goal is we're going to take Canada over. We're going to make Canada Americans. <laughs> nice try, guys. Am I right? And so Brock was one of the British generals. He wasn't the top one, but he was one of the main ones. And uh, so I learned about him in school and was just fascinated because Americans have General Grant and General Washington and all these people. We don't have a ton in Canada because we haven't fought wars in quite the same way that the Americans have. But in the War of 1812, Brock is an honest Canadian hero. And so uh, he would eventually lay down his life defending Canada. He would be killed out Niagara Way in the Battle of Queenston Heights. The Americans tried to invade across the Niagara River and he was leading his troops and he won the battle uh, but he was killed in the battle but for much of his time he was actually in Amherstburg he was at Fort Malden in Amherstburg and so I lived in Amherstburg for a while and pastored there and the, the little boy and me thought this is so cool I'm in the same spot that's where Brock was and so Brock was this incredibly impressive uh, wise, brave, fearless general. And that was in a time where if you were a general, you were often at the front of your troops in the actual battle. You weren't just kind of directing them 
uh, from behind the scenes. You are actually in the battle with them and leading them on. And so that was the kind of leader that he was. That was the kind of general that he was. And so as the War of 1812 breaks out, the Americans want to take over Canada. And so the easiest ways to do that is to either invade on the Niagara side across the river or to invade down here across the Detroit River. And so there was a fort in Amherstburg at Fort Malden down at the bottom there. Uh, and then there is a fort on the American side of the river at Detroit, and that is called Fort Detroit. And so there is an army beginning to gather at Fort Detroit. The Americans are getting ready to invade, and so General Brock is sent to Fort Malden and to gather his forces and get ready to defend Canada on the Canadian side. And so the Americans cross the river, and they start marching south along the river towards Amherstburg. Brock goes out to meet them. Uh, they see Brock coming, and they go, Wah! and they run away, and they go back to America. They retreat back to the fort. And so the Americans are double the size of the Canadian Army. They have double the number of troops. They have triple the number of guns. Uh, and so the Americans go back to Fort Detroit, which was not a big fort, uh, but they are well provisioned. They have tons of men. They have tons of weapons. They are all set. Brock is completely outmatched. He is completely outnumbered. He doesn't have nearly as many guns. But when they retreat to the fort, Brock just says, we're just going to chase them across the river, and we're going to go take that fort. And so he crosses the river, and they surround the fort. Again, completely outnumbered. Uh, and they're in a fort, right? Like, they're safe behind the walls. The Americans could stay there forever uh, and just pick off Canadians and just stay there and be nice and safe with double the numbers and all of those guns. But Brock decides to push his advantage, and he was just a really brave, kind of aggressive guy. And so he surrounds the fort, and he does it in such a way uh, that makes it look like there's a lot more numbers than he actually has. And then he goes to the commander of the American forces, General Hull, and he says, you will surrender right now. And Hull says, well, we have more guys than you, so you know what, why don't you give me three days to think about it? And Brock says, you have three hours, or I will destroy all of you. And they start sort of peppering the fort with some guns here and there. But again, like if, if the Americans hold out, they're in great shape. Like they have all the strength, they have all the advantages. But Brock just laid things out in such a way and was, was so aggressive and so fearless that the Americans gave up the fort without even trying to defend it. Uh, and General Hull was court-martialed for it because they just couldn't believe that he, had, he hadn't even tried. They didn't even have a battle. Uh, he just gave it over. And so all of a sudden, uh, the, <laughs> the Americans lose this prime fort. They lose all these guns. They have hundreds of their soldiers taken as prisoners of war. And Brock had just led so well and been so aggressive and been so kind of shrewd in the way he did things that it was this great, incredible victory. It was early in the war. Uh, and it set it up for the Americans that the Canadians are not going to roll over for you. We are going to be a fight. And hey, we're still Canadian today, so it obviously worked. And so I, I loved that story as a kid. I was just fascinated that, uh, that Brock was actually weaker, right? Like his forces were weaker on paper. Uh, the Americans were much stronger, much stronger army, much stronger force, much stronger guns. And yet... Uh, it wasn't the strongest force that won that day. And that's the way that goes sometimes. It's not always the one who looks strongest on paper who is actually the strongest when you come to living life out. And that is never more true than in the Bible. We do not have to look far in Scripture to see stories of people who are not that strong in and of themselves but were met with great strength by the Lord and got to see amazing things. Abraham and Sarah cannot have a baby on their own. They are too old. 
this physically, biologically, it's not possible for them to have kids. They are too weak in their own flesh to have a baby, and yet the strength of God shows up. And as that happens, they are able to have this blessing. Moses is not a likely choice to go talk to Pharaoh. When God says to Moses, you're going to go, Moses does everything he can to plead out of it. He says, you don't want to send me, Lord. I, I am slow of speech. I don't want to go. I, you're not, I'm not the guy you want. I don't have that ability. And of course, that was the point. Moses doesn't have the ability on his own. But God is strong. God is there. God is going to show his strength through Moses' weakness. There's a story of Gideon in the book of Judges where Gideon has this big army to go fight Israel's enemies. And the Lord says to Gideon, you're too big. You're too strong as an army. You're so strong as an army that if you win, you might think that you actually did it instead of me. So we're going to send home 90% of the army. We're going to leave you with a few hundred guys. And then you're going to go fight your enemy and you're going to see what the Lord does. And as Gideon goes out and does that, the Lord does it. The Lord brings the victory about Gideon and his few hundred guys could never say it was out of our own strength. It was out of our own ability that we did this. David and Goliath may be the most famous example. David is outmatched in that fight in every way. He is young. He is small. He is inexperienced. Goliath is huge. He is well armored. He is a seasoned warrior. Like David is at a serious disadvantage in that fight. But when Goliath comes out to fight him, David says, hey, you've got your weapons, you've got your armor, but I am coming in the name of the Lord. And the Lord brings the victory about. And so we have story after story in Scripture of people who were not that strong on their own, but their God was strong through them. Their God was strong working through them. And Hebrews 11 talks about a lot of these great heroes of the faith. And it's one of the things that, that is described about them. All these great heroes of the faith, it says their weakness was turned into strength. They were not necessarily strong on their own, but their weakness was turned into strength by God. And that is completely upside down from the way we naturally look at things, from the way the world looks at things, because we really value strength in our culture and in most cultures. In the time that the New Testament is written, Rome rules the world. Rome was a strong culture. They valued strong men. They valued strong armies. It was all about strength. Who is the strongest? At the time, the answer is Rome. Rome is the strongest, and the strongest win. Rome is the strongest, and the strongest take what they want. Rome is the strongest, and the strongest get to rule the world. The strongest get to win is what common sense says. It's not always biblically common sense. In the Bible, it's our weakness, actually, that can be used as strength by the Lord. It's upside down to the way we might naturally think, but that's what we're digging into today. So let's take a look at our text. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He says, I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. 
Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of, of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, 2 Corinthians, obviously, is the follow-up to 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and 1 Corinthians is really Paul writing to a church that's in a lot of trouble. There's a lot of struggle going on in the Corinthian church. And so 1 Corinthians deals with a lot of that. There's some theological things that they're misunderstanding. There's a lot of a lack of love. There's sort of camps and cliques forming in the church, and people aren't treating each other overly well. They've really mis misunderstood grace, and we're using grace as a license to sin more because they had grace, they were forgiven. So 1 Corinthians is dealing with a lot of the problems going on in the church. 2 Corinthians is the follow-up, and so Paul is sort of checking in again with the church, and, and how are they doing? One of the things that apparently has happened, either maybe before, but more likely in between the writing of the two letters, uh, is that a group has moved into the church that in 2 Corinthians, Paul sort of rolls his eyes and gives the nickname the super apostles. That there had apparently been a group that had sort of moved in, they were calling themselves apostles, uh, they were teaching things that were not in line with what uh, sound theology said. They were really boastful about themselves and what they had seen and what they had heard. We've had all these visions and, and spiritual experiences, and they were really tearing down the actual apostles a lot. So a good chunk of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul defending himself against these so-called super apostles. And so Paul, there's a bit of a, an eye roll as he talks about them through the letter, um, but a lot of it is him just having to defend himself against all these accusations that they were making, which is that they were kind of the better apostles, that they had the right to call themselves apostles. The fact that they had all these spiritual experiences meant they were supposed to be listened to, but Paul says, no, they're coming in as false teachers. They are coming in uh, not in any way in agreement with us or, or with what the Lord has told us. Uh, they're not actually apostles at all, but they were lifting themselves higher. They were elevating themselves above Paul and above Peter and all of the others. They were accusing Paul of all kinds of stuff. And so they were doing a lot of bragging, and we see that throughout the letter. They were boasting a lot in themselves. Here's what we've seen. Here's what we've heard. Here's what qualifies us. Here's what makes us apostles. Uh, we've seen these visions. We've had these experiences. And so they were elevating themselves a lot. They were putting Paul down a lot. And they really, on paper, appeared very, very strong. Uh, they had had experiences, allegedly. And then they, they could uh, communicate clearly, allegedly. And they, they seemed to have a lot going for them in a kind of worldly way of looking at it. They seemed to have a lot of strength. And to those people and to those charges, uh, Paul writes 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he starts off by kind of doing a bit of boasting on his own. And I won't read all of it now in the interest of time, but verse 1 through 4, he says, hey, I know someone who's been to heaven, who's literally been to heaven. I know someone who's been there, and it was so incredible that they couldn't even explain it. It was just so far beyond. I don't know whether it was a vision. I don't know whether they were physically there. I don't know. But, but if you want to talk spiritual experiences like these super apostles are bragging about all the time, here's a spiritual experience. I know someone who's been to heaven, literally. 
Now, he's talking about himself, uh, which is interesting, because he says, I'm not going to boast, but he does a little boasting. We'll come back to that in a second. But he lays out that, you know what, if, if you guys are in the church are so impressed by spiritual experiences, here's a spiritual experience for you. Uh, I know someone who was caught up to heaven. I know someone who, who saw things that could not be described, the indescribable things. So he seems to be trying to kind of match the super apostles in a way where they were always boasting about experiences. He seems to be saying, well, if you like spiritual experiences, try this one on for size. I know someone who's been to heaven. And yet he doesn't stop there. That's not where it ends. Moving on to verse, verse 5. He says, I'll boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. And so Paul is talking about he was the man who was caught up to heaven. And so it's interesting because it sort of sounds like he's humble bragging almost. Like, I, I'm not going to boast, but FYI, I have been to heaven. Like, it almost seems like he's sort of boasting but not boasting. And again, this is a lot of what the super apostles were doing. And we don't like people who boast, right? We don't like people who are always talking about how great they are. And so Paul's going to flip the script on this conversation. So he's starting off saying, hey, if you like really incredible spiritual experiences, here's mine. But he's not stopping there. And so he is saying, hey, I've had experiences too, but that's not really what we're going to be emphasizing. That's not really what it's going to be about. So he seems to be using one of his own spiritual experiences to say, all right, spiritual experiences happen, talking about them uh, is okay, but real apostles don't do that. He's going to flip now into a different mode uh, as we go through the passage. Real apostles don't just talk about how amazing they are all the time. Real apostles don't, don't brag and boast all the time. And then he goes into, see, I've had this experience, but look, here's what happens next. Verse 7. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, to torment me. So if we're going to have these great experiences, there can be a price to that, he is saying. And these apostles are not praying, these super apostles are not paying that price. But I've had this incredible experience. Uh, in order to keep me from becoming full of myself, some, some weakness came to me instead. Uh, and much has been discussed in this thorn of the flesh. What is this thorn of the flesh? Uh, if you've been stuck with a thorn, you know it hurts. It doesn't debilitate you, but it, it stings. It smarts. If you've ever had something stuck, like a sliver or a thorn in your flesh, it kind of nags at you. And so we don't really know what exactly he's talking about. He doesn't give us any more detail about what that is he's talking about. He says, something from the enemy came. Uh, it came to torment me. It was something that was, that was bothersome. And so some have speculated that maybe it was a physical condition, a sickness or a disease. There's a few other passages in the New Testament that suggest that Paul had some physical issues that were going on. Some have suggested it was just literally a demonic thing, just some sort of demonic affliction uh, spiritually that was coming after him. Some have suggested maybe it was people. Uh, he would talk in the New Testament about people who were out to get him and who had an agenda against him. Maybe it was someone like that that he's talking about. Maybe it was a temptation, you know, whatever uh, sin struggle he was going through. And he was saying, Lord, take this temptation away from me. But it wasn't. Like, maybe it was something like that. And the truth is, we don't know. But it suggests that there was some sort of chronic struggle in his life. 
that was difficult that he couldn't overcome. There was something there that was nagging, that was difficult, that was painful that he was going through. And we don't know exactly what it was, but I actually think that's kind of brilliant because it could be whatever thing you're struggling with. And if he had said, well, I had this physical condition and I don't have the physical condition, then it's pretty easy just to uh, pretend that that passage isn't for me. But by leaving it vague, we can put ourselves into the story a lot easier because we all have things that we struggle with. We all have things that we go through. So this thorn in the flesh comes. This demonic assignment against him comes, whatever that looks like. In verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that's not really, for anyone reading that or hearing that in the culture at the time, that's not how they're expecting the story to go. Right? Three times I asked the Lord to relieve me from this thing, from this physical affliction, or from this difficult relational situation, or from this demonic spiritual attack, or from this whatever. I pleaded with him to take it away three times. Now, the way the story might go in other parts of the Bible is I asked him to take it away once, and nothing happened. I asked him to take it away twice, and nothing happened. But then the third time I asked him to take it away, the Lord took it away. Like, that would be somewhat of a common biblical formula. And yet, it doesn't go that way this time. Paul says, three times I asked for this thing to be lifted off of me, but God actually says, no, I'm not going to lift this affliction from you because my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. So it doesn't go the way, it doesn't sound overly triumphant. It doesn't sound like, hey, let's celebrate the testimony of answered prayer here. It's, no, you're actually going to stay in this. The thorn in the flesh is going to remain. But that's not really the end of it. Because sometimes we can look at that and go like, oh, man, so does that mean the thing I'm struggling with right now isn't going to get answered? Does that mean I'm going to be dealing with this forever? Is that what this passage is saying? And, and the only answer is maybe. That might be God's answer for you, but that is actually not bad news. Because the promise of grace is greater than anything else we can imagine. If we're saying, oh man, his grace coming is worse than me getting my situation changed, then we're really misunderstanding what his grace is. Because the grace that is sufficient, you will always have what you need. Like a glass of water when you really need it, you will always have enough. You have enough to get through this. You have enough to get through this. His grace will be enough to get you through this. And our thinking is so limited that we say, oh, I'm never going to be happy until the situation changes. I am never going to have peace until this thorn is taken out of my flesh. I'm never going to feel the fullness of joy while this thing is still nagging at me. And that's completely backwards. The promise of God in this passage is, no, you can have the joy now, even if you have a thorn in your flesh. You can have the peace now, even if you have something chronic in your life. You can have his presence. You can have his fullness. You can have his grace, and that will be enough. You don't have to carry the misery of this thing forever. But whether the situation changes or whether it doesn't, his grace will be there for you. There is peace there for you. There is joy there for you. And Paul actually delights in the fact that God said no to this particular request. He actually gets excited about it as time goes on. And so one thing I want to note as we're praying, and we pray, and we pray, Lord, change this thing, change this thing. It would be, I think, misunderstanding the passage 
to look at any trial we're going through in our life and just say automatically, God's probably not going to do anything, so I just need to lead on his grace. I think that would be misunderstanding it. We had a lady at a previous church, and she had a long-time physical condition that caused her a lot of pain. And I asked her once, I was visiting with her, and I said, let me pray for you. And she said, um, well, you know what? I've made my peace with it, that this is the thorn in the flesh, and so I don't even really pray about it anymore. Like, I'm just trusting that God is, is using it, and it's for my good. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's good. That's the right attitude for sure. Um, but, I mean, God told Paul specifically, I'm not going to remove this particular trial from your life. Like, God told him that. I said, have, have God told you that? Has that been something you felt like he told you? And she said, well, no, but I, I prayed about it for a while and nothing changed. And so I, I would just want to add to that sort of idea. It doesn't mean that whatever trial we're facing, we just need to be okay with, and we just need to settle into it and, and make our peace with it necessarily. Because there are prayers that God is going to answer, and there are prayers that he might not. But let's not just presume that because we're in a difficulty, we're supposed to just stop praying and be okay with it because his grace is sufficient. Discernment becomes important here. Paul heard from God on this particular trial, I'm not going to take this away from you, I'm just going to give you my grace. There are other trials that Paul faced where God did answer, where God did deliver him, where God did miraculously show up. And so the call on this passage is not just to automatically apply it universally to everything, because it'd be very easy to say, well, you know, my marriage is struggling, and that's just my thorn in the flesh, so why even bother trying? And I think that's misunderstanding the passage. Or I have a physical thing, but I'm not going to deal with it. It's like, well, maybe, but let's press in and hear from God on that. If you feel like the Lord is saying this is something you're going to go through, then okay, go through it and lean on the grace that he will provide. But we don't want to automatically apply that to every single thing that we face. Uh, in this particular case, the answer to Paul was, I'm not going to change your circumstance, but you're going to have the grace you need to get through it. And Paul is okay with that because of the, the whole idea that he starts to unpack that, oh, so when I'm at my weakest, that's when God's power shows up the most. When I am at my lowest, God is there the most. And so we see that most clearly, of course, in the life of Jesus and most clearly in the cross. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul has written this, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things and things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. There is something in God, and we see it in Abraham's story, and Moses' story, and Gideon's story, and David's story, and story after story after story after story, in the life of Christ, in the cross of Christ, there is something that the Lord seems to delight in taking unusual weak things and displaying his strength through them, so that nobody gets the credit except for him. So we like to lean on our strengths. We like to lean on what we're really good at. We like to lean on where we are confident, and we like to lean on things that we know work. And yet God, over and over again, chooses the opposite. He chooses the upside-down way. And you know what? I'm going to choose weak people and show my strength through them. I'm going to take unusual, weird, lowly situations, and I'm going to display my glory through them. Because then, when that happens, no one's going to be able to say, I did it out of my own strength. And at the cross, God it's the most unusual way that God could have saved the world. The cross was for criminals. It was for the worst of criminals. Like a God who died in the worst possible way? 
Like a God who lowered himself to that point, born as a baby, living in poverty his whole life. A God, a king who wasn't glorious on the throne when he walked this earth, who was just wandering around from town to town, never had anything to call his own, never was crowned king while he walked the earth here. A God who lived the lowliest possible life and then dies the most horrible possible death. That's God's plan to save the world. It's very upside down. If God wanted to save the world, he could have just had Jesus come like he's going to come next time on the clouds of glory. Just the whole world sees them. You can't deny the glory. You can't deny the power. He sits on the throne. Everybody sees it. He could have done it that way. But God delights, no, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world, to shame the strong, the unlikely things, the lowly things in order to accomplish what he wants to do. In the upside down kingdom, weak is strong. Because God is strong. He is the one doing it, and it's displayed most clearly in our weakness. Our world values strength. We value strength. We look to strength. God looks to what's something weak that I can use, and then pour my strength through that. As Paul begins to wrap up, verse 9, he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. God had just said, my grace is enough for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul says, if that is true, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. If the, if the better way to experience God's power is to embrace weakness, Paul says, then I'm going to be all about my weaknesses. If that's the best possible place to meet the Lord, then I'm going to lean into that. And how many of us have stories of, you know, when we were at our sickest or when we were at our lowest or when we were facing the biggest struggle that God's grace showed up in incredible ways. God's power showed up in incredible ways. God's peace showed up in incredible ways. Paul says, if that's the secret to encountering Jesus in greater and greater measure, then I can be all about my weaknesses. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm at my weakness, God's strength shows up the most. And his grace is sufficient for me, whatever I am going through. And so if we are uh, understanding that, then it becomes a little less about, well, what can I do on my own? What can I do where I lean on my own strengths? What can I do where I am doing the work or making it happen? When was the last time you put yourself in a place where if God didn't show up, it was going to be a failure? When was the last time you put yourself out on the faith limb that much? Because in the book of Acts, Peter stands up to preach the gospel, and if the Holy Spirit doesn't convict people, if he doesn't reveal people, then Peter looks like an idiot in front of thousands of people. Right? He has no choice other than to trust that God's going to show up. They would go and pray for someone for healing. If that healing doesn't happen, then all of a sudden, they're just out there publicly, and they're just the weirdos who pray for healing, and it doesn't work. Like when was the last time you put yourself out there, not just leaning on your own strengths, not just leaning on what you know you can do, but when was the last time you put yourself in a place where you were weak, you were not maybe overly confident, where the only thing that could happen for this to work would be for God to show up? It requires us to shift our thinking a lot because we all have strengths, we all have gifts, 
it's all good. The gifts come from God. I'm not saying deny your gifts because those gifts come from him. You are to use them, and you are to use them to glorify his name. But where in our lives are we leaning into weakness, leaning into what we're not good at, leaning into uh, where we're not strong, and saying, okay, Lord, this is a spot where I really need you to show up now. This is a spot where I need you to show up. People often say, you know what, I don't share Jesus with people because I'm not good at it. Uh, I don't know what to say. I don't know, uh, I don't have the right words. I don't know how to answer questions. Um, and, and that's understandable. I can understand that for sure. But the Apostle Paul also apparently was not great at talking to people about Jesus. He would acknowledge that himself. One of the things the super apostles had accused Paul of was they said, you know what, he's really unimpressive in person. He writes really well. He writes very forcefully, but he's really unimpressive in person. Paul would say this in the first letter to the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul says, I came, I was scared, I didn't know really what I was doing. And, and my message wasn't this great polished gospel presentation where I had all the answers. I came to you in weakness, I came to you afraid, I came to you very unpolished, but a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power was there so that none of you would ever say, well, maybe I only came to Jesus because Paul was super impressive. Right? Maybe Paul is just a great salesman, and that's why I said yes to Jesus. He says, no, I was so unimpressive, that's how you know it was the Holy Spirit. I was so unimpressive, that's how you know that this was real. Because God has breathed his power through my weakness. So in that sense, I hate to tell you, we are sort of without excuse. When it comes to taking a step of faith, when it comes to uh, to, to going in a way that maybe we're not fully comfortable with. Maybe it's not our greatest gift. Maybe we're not super strong in that area. We're supposed to understand that, you know what, if his strength shows up, that's the only strength that's required. I don't need to have it all figured out. I don't need to have a great gospel presentation. If someone comes to, the, comes to Jesus through my clumsy sharing of the gospel, then they'll know it's not because the presentation was so slick. Or because I was such a great speaker, Paul says, it's because the Spirit was there. It's because this was real. It's because God was moving. And so it's, again, upside down to the way we naturally do things. It's completely upside down. And it calls us to put ourselves in a place where we're not just shrugging away from our weaknesses and only embracing our strengths, but where we are actually saying, okay, I have gifts from God, and I can use them for sure, but I'm going to embrace my weakness. I'm going to embrace persecution. I'm going to embrace insults. I'm going to embrace hardships, whether the weakness is a situation in my life, whether it's maybe part of my personality, or whether it's a gift that I don't have. I'm going to embrace weakness, understanding that in weakness is where Christ's power dwells, so that we know it's Christ, and we know it's not me. I'm not talking about being reckless, I'm not talking about being wild, but to prayerfully and with wisdom say, where can I go that's not my own strength? If all I'm doing in my life is what I know will go well, then I'm not really walking by faith. If all I'm doing is what I know can go well because I've walked in a gift for many years or whatever, then faith isn't really a part of it. But when I put myself in the place where I, I maybe don't have that gift or there's a weakness in my personality or I'm in a situation where I'm just feeling weak or lowly or whatever, Paul says that's the point where Jesus shows up the most. Are you with me today? Super quiet in here. 
Is it because we're saying, oh, I'd so much rather just be strong? Embracing weakness is not an easy idea. Again, upside down. That's the point of this series. It's a challenging kingdom that we are a part of. But we follow a savior who was on paper as weak as it gets in himself, in his human existence, right? Could not have been born to a lowlier state, could not have lived a more poverty-filled life, never went to theological school, never got educated with the greats, never had great teaching imparted to him, never had status in this life, never had influence in this world in terms of the traditional ways that we have influence. And yet, because he was one with the Father and because the Spirit dwelt on him, because he was God himself, power shows up, power shows up, power shows up, power shows up, power shows up. He goes to the cross, the symbol of weakness. He rises in triumph, not because of uh, the cross wasn't terrible, because God exerts his mighty strength in raising Jesus from the dead. That doesn't normally happen. But God shows his power there. This man who died in the worst possible way, God raises him from the dead again. And then when Jesus leaves, the apostles continue in his example, and they are not impressive men. There's nothing about them that has influence or status. And yet they, by the Spirit, have planted this church and through the Spirit have written this word that we still stand on thousands of years later. Not because they were great, because he was great through them. And they were humble enough to say, okay, it's not about us, it's about him. It's not about my gift, it's about him moving through me. It's not about, like even the Apostle Paul, like when he says, I didn't come with wise and persuasive words, maybe in person he didn't do very well. We've read his letters, he has wise and persuasive words. Uh, maybe not in person, but he understood enough that even any words that come from me come from God. I can't take credit for my gifts. It's his power moving through me. I can't get full of myself. It's his power moving through me. We follow a savior who embraced the life of weakness and God's power was displayed through him. If we're going to be citizens of this kingdom, following after him in this kingdom, we too need to be people that are okay with our weakness, not covering it from everybody. We can be honest about our weakness as Paul was and understand that those are the meeting places with God. Those are the places where he can show up in amazing ways. Come on up, worship team. We're just about ready to go. We have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. We'll be happy to take any questions that you have about the message if you want to keep that conversation going. So the world is impressed with strength. Always has been. Probably always will be. The world is impressed with shows of strength. The kingdom is impressed with weakness that gets submitted to a strong king with weakness that we give to him, where we say, I'm, I'm stuck. I can't get out of this on my own. I can't fix this on my own. I can't heal my body. I can't save my marriage. I can't make my kids follow Jesus. I can't make myself a great speaker. I can't make myself really bold because uh, I'm really shy. Like there's, there's lots of weakness in our life where we can't do anything. And the word of the Lord is his grace is for you. Stop thinking you will only be happy when your situation changes. There is Holy Spirit available to you now, regardless of what you're facing. And he might remove the thorn, and he might leave the thorn, or he might leave it for a season, and we don't know the why. But his grace is always there. Peace is always available. Joy is always available, no matter what. And as we grow in this, and as we mature in this, and as we meditate in this, to say, okay, Lord, where? Where in my life is there weakness where I can actually lean into your power in that place? Where I, actually, I can actually embrace my weakness 
so I can grab a hold of it, not as a source of shame and not as a source of, of something I need to hide, but something where I say, hey, that weak area of my life is where God shows up the most. And like Paul say, well, if that's the case, then I'm going to be all about my weaknesses. I'm going to be all in on my weaknesses. If that means more Jesus in that area of my life, if that takes me deeper with him, if that forces me to press into him, if that's where I can meet with his presence and then taste that grace, then I'm going to be okay with that. My weakness, if that's the meeting place with God, I will make my weaknesses a meeting place with God. I will make that the place where I get to encounter him. Would you stand with me, please, as we get ready to close? The words will be up on the screen, and then we'll finish off in prayer.